0: Scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to read the last verse there, which sets up chapter 17. The Holy Scriptures read, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him and peter said to jesus lord it is good that we are here if you wish i will make three tents here one for you and one for moses and one for elijah And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice boomed out from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one, of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask again that we would understand your truth and be changed by it. Father, shape our hearts. Change us to not be like Demas who loved the things of this world, but help us to live for the eternal and unseen world, which is to come so very soon. We just have a, but a short time, just a vapor, to store up treasures in heaven, to live for you in a way that will impact our entire eternity. So, Father, we just ask that by your Spirit, and through the power of your grace at work within us, that we would do these things. That we would serve you as servants worthy of you, knowing that we are not worthy of you. So we ask that you would help us to. Help us to jettison sin. Help us to not live for the things of this world, to not be tempted by our flesh or the devil or the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You see them online, you see them on TV, you actually even see them at the theater right before the film you went started. What are they? Movie trailers. Movie trailers have been around for a long, long time. In fact, they go back to 1913 by a man named Marcus Lowell, oh, actually, his, man, sorry, his name was Nils Granlund, and he was an advertising manager for the Marcus Lowell Theater chain, who produced for them a short promotional film by editing footage together. And the purpose for this was to generate excitement and interest for the full-length film. However, to do so and to do it properly meant he had to be very selective in what he was going to show and not show. And what essentially he was doing here, he was trimming hours worth of film down into just mere minutes. Which is actually no easy thing to do. Because if you showed too much of the movie, no one would be that interested at that point. Because, you know, they gave the whole thing away. And some of these trailers do this today. I don't understand why they do it. But it's not a good approach. The other mistake would be to show too little where no one would care or even understand what made your movie so special. And so if you did either of those, you would fail to generate interest And excitement for the movie. And so this person, whoever was producing the movie trailer, had to stop and really think about what they wanted to show and not show. They had to not only decide what clips would best represent the movie's themes and plots, but they had to put them together in a compelling and artistic way. The goal was to draw people's interest so that they would come out and enjoy the film that they had spent so much time making. See, these people who made the film, they wanted these people to come enjoy it and not miss out. And the movie trailer was a way of encouraging them to not miss out on it. So with this in mind, looking to Matthew chapter 17, we find a trailer. We find a preview of the greatest coming attraction of them all. And that's no overstatement, not even a little bit. For not only is this preview beyond amazing, but so is what it's previewing. And what is it previewing for us? The glory of Christ's kingdom, which is coming to us so very soon. See, over and over, Jesus has been telling and showing his disciples throughout his earthly ministry that he is the king of God's glorious kingdom. He showed that with the miraculous way he taught, with the miraculous healing he did, and he shows them here today the Mount of Transfiguration, but still, they don't get it, and that's why we have the Mount of Transfiguration. Sure, there's been improvements, like we saw last week with Peter, who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but then two seconds later, Jesus is calling him Satan, because he's living for the things of this world, not the things of heaven. And so, Jesus goes on to tell him that not only will he die, but so too must they be willing to do if they are going to be his disciples. And so in Matthew 16, 25 through 26, we saw this last week, and here's what it reads. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, this doesn't sound very good, does it? What kind of kingdom has what kind of kingdom has a king who dies? Not a very successful one. What kind of a kingdom has servants who are constantly being snuffed out? Not a very powerful one. Or so at least the disciples thought. Which is why in chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus then tells them this, as we just read a moment ago, and here's what he says. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Okay, wait a minute. So the kingdom's king will die. Many of the kingdom's servants will suffer that same fate. And now you're telling me that the kingdom's king will come with God's glory and an army of angels to conquer, rule, and reign? How does any of that work? That doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make sense to you? Well, to the disciples, it didn't make much sense at all. And yet, if the disciples had seen and known that Jesus what Jesus had seen and knew, they wouldn't have questioned any of it, would it? they have? No, they wouldn't. And so understanding the fickle and weak nature of his disciples, Jesus then, in Matthew chapter 17, as we just read, gives them a preview of his coming glory that is coming with his kingdom. And do you remember the verse we just read? He says, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. What a promise that is. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, you must be willing to die too, as 11 of the 12 came to do. They died. Uh, But he says something remarkable then right after that. He says, we just read, I'll read it again. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then, verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, according to Matthew and Mark's account, or eight days if you read Luke's, because it's about eight days, uh, that comes true. As Jesus takes some of them who were standing there when he said that, and who does he take? Peter, James, and John. He takes them up to a high mountain and gives them a preview of the kingdom's glory. It's remarkable. But here's the question we've got to ask. How does the Mount of Transfiguration fulfill this verse here? Truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How is the Mount of Transfiguration a fulfillment of that? Okay, that's a good question. We'll address it. However, with one caveat, we don't have time to address it fully, so maybe we can talk about it during our fellowship and focus an hour. But here's the short version. Well, our English Bibles often say, coming in his kingdom, as it says right there, another perfectly, and I think a better viable way to translate this, is coming in his kingly splendor. It can be translated either way. And I think with the context that we see here, it makes sense that that's what Jesus would be talking about. And the only problem is we have this chapter division, which was put there by men, about a thousand years later, after the Bible was put together, which separated these and make it look like it's something totally separate. But it's not, which is a good argument for looking at Bible verses in their context, And so, if Jesus is speaking of his kingly splendor, then certainly Jesus' transfiguration on the mount counts as seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingly splendor. So, no, this verse, I don't think it's talking about the arrival of the physical kingdom. Because, for one, that didn't happen yet. And another thing is just this idea, if you don't know if you've heard of this expression, but it's called kingdom now theology. Like, we're in the kingdom, it's here. There's no physical kingdom, we're just spiritually in it. And they'll use this verse to justify it, but if we look at the context, it doesn't really fit with that, does it? No, it's simply talking about a preview of Christ's kingly glory, which if we go back to that previous verse, talks about that glory coming one day on full display at Christ's second coming. And so the disciples, they needed this preview because it served powerfully to remind them what lay behind death's shadow. And what lay behind death's shadow? Resurrection. The same resurrection that Christ experienced is coming to all of us who have professed and trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the disciples needed this reminder. They needed this preview. And so Jesus gives it to them on full display to help change their bleak outlook. And we know that it accomplished just that because if you read an older Peter retelling of this event in 2 Peter chapter 2, which we don't have time to read right now, you can tell that this event drastically changed their outlook upon the kingdom. I encourage you to read that sometime. And so for us, while we aren't yet able to see what they saw, they did happen to write it down for us and they wrote it down for us. Why? So that we as well might experience the change in our own lives that they experienced by seeing this kingdom preview. And that change comes to us by seeing three things. First, to be changed by the kingdom's preview, we must see the beauty of the kingdom. We must see the weight of glory. Sorry, the beauty of glory, the weight of glory, and the hope of glory. Hey, Jacob, you could turn the mic down just a tiny bit. I'm hearing a feedback that's disorientating me. Um, All right, let's read verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That's verse 2. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 17, follow along if you would. That's verse 2. Or in Mark's account, I'll just read this for us, you don't have to turn there. He says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach. And the reason for this dazzling light is because it was the Shekinah glory that had been concealed or veiled in flesh the Godhead seen, as we just sang a moment ago in that Christmas song, which fits better in July right now than it does in Christmas, because of the text we're in. See, originally, humanity was created to dwell and flourish in the presence of God's Shekinah glory, which is why in Genesis it tells us about how our first parents, Adam and Eve, walked and talked with God in the garden. There was no veil. But then, when they rebelled against God and sinned, they were cast out of the garden away from the glory of God. And ever since then, humanity has been walking in darkness, unable to live in the radiant glory of God, which is where we flourish best. It's what we're made for. And so, with that consequence, though, however, there did come a promise. Yes, they were cast out. Yes, the curse came upon humanity and this world, but it also came with a promise by God. And that promise was that God would not leave us exiled forever from his glorious presence. In fact, he promised that one day he would send someone who would bring us back into that presence. And so time came and went. And eventually God showed a glimpse of his glory to a man named Abram, who he then changed his name to what? Abraham. And then he, Abraham and his wife, they were unable to have children. Abraham was too old, his wife was too old, and yet God miraculously delivered them a child in which he promised to one day make a great nation out of. And he did just that. But then many years later, those descendants were still living in exile from God's glory. In fact, we find in Exodus that they were living in bondage under Pharaoh. And so God came to a man named Moses on a mount and he revealed just a glimpse of his glory in a burning bush and then told this Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go, release them from their slavery. And then, and you know the story, and the kids have just gone through this in our Sunday school hour, but 10 miraculous plagues later, Pharaoh did just that as God led the Israelites to the land that he had promised to their forefathers, Abraham. And how did he lead them to that land? By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And make no mistake, within this cloud, whether it be by day or by night, the Shekinah glory of God resided. It was a powerful and miraculous display. And then, on that way to the promised land, God led his people to the base of Mount Sinai where he covered the mountain in a thick cloud. It says in that text that there was lightning, there was thunder, followed by a loud trumpet blast, which caused the people of Israel to tremble before the mighty mighty glory of Yahweh God. Then Moses brought the people to the foot of the mountain to meet God, and they dared not touch even the base of the mountain. And why not? Because the mountain was covered in God's glory, and if you touched it, you were dead on the spot. And so they were terrified of this, for God's glory for sinners was a terrifying thing. And then before them, as they watched, the entire mountain was filled with smoke because the Lord God, it says in that text, descended upon it with fire. The whole mountain then trembled again greatly as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, proclaiming the glory of God. Then, after Moses spoke out to the Lord, the Lord responded to him in the voice, but a voice of mighty thunder, of terrifying thunder, calling Moses then to that come up to the top of the mountain where he would give his people his holy law so that they might live in covenant with him. And upon that mountain, Moses then asked to see God's face, but he was denied since the full display of God's glory would have completely destroyed him on the spot. Then after receiving the law and agreeing to the covenant, God instructed the people to make a tabernacle for them in which he would reside on their trip to the promised land, or a holy tent we might call it. And in the center of that large tent, there was a smaller tent that they called the Holy of Holies, in which the glory cloud dwelt. And you didn't dare approach the Holy of Holies if you wanted to live and tell about it. And that Holy of Holies then served as a veil for the Shekinah glory cloud to shield the people from God's glory and keep them safe. And then in Exodus, we read of this terrifying account which says this, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Years later, a similar thing happened. When they finally reached the promised land, and King David's son, King Solomon, built a permanent tackle, tabernacle for Yahweh God. In fact, it wasn't a tabernacle, it was a temple where his glory would then reside. But then, when the people failed time and time again, though God was merciful, though God was gracious, even though the people failed time and time again to honor and obey God's covenant law, finally then, the glory of the Lord departed the temple, leaving them to face the dire consequences of their sin and rebellion. And yet, despite all of this, that promise that we started with, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the promise that God made in the garden held true. For after showing some of his glory to Mary and Joseph, to the shepherds who watched their flocks by night, to the magi who followed the glory star by night, and we just sang about that a moment ago, low in the shadows of Bethlehem, God most high in a manger laid, the king who came with no crown or throne, helpless he lay the the invisible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. And then years later, the beauty and glory of God was unveiled but for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration in the person of Jesus Christ, as we just read about a moment ago, whose glory was both beautiful and weighty before the eyes of sinful men, which leads us to our second point. To be changed by the kingdom's preview, we must see the beauty of glory, but secondly, we need to understand the weight of glory. It's no light thing. In fact, it's a very heavy and serious matter. After Jesus' metamorpho is the Greek word, and I'm guessing you probably don't need me to tell you what that word is in our English translation. It sounds pretty similar. It's metamorphosis, whatever. There appears before them two other figures talking with Jesus. And who are these two figures? Moses and Elijah. Now think about this. Imagine this for a moment. The disciples, they grew up, like these guys were legends in the Jewish in the Jewish religion, okay? And they're sitting there, and they're seeing guys who lived thousands of years before them standing there, walking and talking with Jesus as they're surrounded in the glory. Do you see now then why this kingdom preview was so important and why it fits so closely with what Jesus just told them back in in the last chapter, in chapter 16? Remember the context. Jesus just told his disciples, he's like, I'm going to die, and guess what? You're going to too. Ready to sign up? And then here, they see people they thought were long gone and dead who are there standing before them, walking and talking. And they're like, hmm, wait a minute. Jesus said he's going to rise from the dead. Maybe we will too. This seems to be the God of life. Remember, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so with this preview in mind then, you see now why their confidence was bolstered in the face of death's shadow. And so too, church, should it be the same for us? No matter if you're nearing the end of your life because of old age, no matter if you get that diagnosis that is terminal, which all some of us may have and probably likely will have at some point, it shouldn't put fear in us. That destroys us. Yes, it's scary, but not really, because behind death's shadow lies the glory of Christ waiting for all of us who are in Christ. And then, after this glory shows up on the mount... Transfiguring Jesus in front of them with the dazzling, glorious appearance of great light. long comes Peter. Oh, Peter, with what Peter always seemed to do, which was foot-in-mouth disease. And Peter starts some of you can relate. I know I can usually gets me into trouble, just as it did with Peter. Uh, but this is exactly what happens to Peter. After seeing these three figures stand before them, Peter gets a really brilliant idea ah, pun, light, brilliant. Anyways. He gets a great idea, and what's his idea? He says, I know, let's put up a tabernacle before you, for you three. Let's do that. That'll be a great idea. Look at verse four. Lord, it is good that we are here. Okay, not bad so far. That's true. Yes, but probably shouldn't be talking. Lord, it is good we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, there's a few ways to understand what Peter's getting at here. One of them is just nonsense gibberish, as Luke kind of alludes to in his account. Um, But I think this is interesting because this is a very viable uh, interpretation for what Peter's getting at here. But if you look up that word for tent in the Greek, you know what word it is. Tabernacle. Right? And so... Either Peter was just spewing out gibberish, or more likely, I think what's going on here, is Peter is seeing the Shekinah glory of God, of Christ, radiate off of him and through those Moses and Elijah who are standing there. And he starts to think, you know what, we need to wrap this up here. Maybe put a tabernacle around this because, whew, this is overwhelming. Now, that's a perfectly viable interpretation. I don't know if it's that, or it could be that Peter is thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles where the Jewish people would build tents and shelters and live in them for seven days. We don't really know exactly what Peter's thinking. He may be thinking that, hey, right now, I mean, because keep in mind, we're looking back at this with a full view of Scripture. They didn't have this. In their mind, they thought the kingdom was coming soon, but it wasn't. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for it. And so when this shows up, Don't you think if you had read the Old Testament prophecies about the second coming of Christ, which we read a New Testament prophecy of that just a little bit ago in the book of Revelation, that you would think, hey, maybe this is it. Maybe they're here to stay. Let's build something for them. Let's build a a residence up here for them of some kind. Like, who knows? But it makes sense why Peter is so bewildered. You probably would have been too, knowing what Peter knew. So let's be nice to Peter. And then... In the midst of Peter, while he was still talking, the text actually says, what happens? God the Father steps in and is basically like, Peter, sit down and zip it. You need to listen to Jesus and stop talking. That's exactly what happens in this text. Look at verses 5 through 6. While he, being Peter, was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The word here for terrified is phobio, which is where we get our English word phobia. And it's not just talking about reverence. It's not just talking about worship. It's talking about, tr- about terror. That's the idea behind this word. It's talking about terror. And make no mistake, to be in the presence of the glory of God for us, this side of eternity, is a fearful and terrif- terrifying thing. And that's why they fell on their faces. And let me remind you that this is exactly the right and normative response for every sin-fallen human who stands before the glory of God. And it's in fact, this is why when, when we see angels, typically when they show up, what do they have to start their message with? Fear not. Because the natural thing, they're just reflectors of God's glory. They don't have their own glory they're given off. They're reflecting God's glory as we one day will do. But it's still terrifying. They're mirrors for the glory of God, and that is terrifying. So that's why they say, fear not. And so this is just a little practical thing. You can take it or leave it. But these people who will tell you, oh, Jesus showed up to me last night in the middle of the night and told me this. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think he did, because you would probably have had a heart attack of how fearful it would have been. Right? Like these descriptions of, oh, it was just so sweet and nice. It's like, I don't think that's the God who showed up. I don't know who you saw or what you ate. Anyways, that's free. All right, all throughout the Bible... Here's the point. Even glimpses of God's glory is a terrifying thing. And it's quite remarkable because, on one hand, right, like we wither and die apart from God's glory, don't we? We absolutely do. But on the other hand, we can't live without that glory. We need it, we were made for it. But we can't live in it any more than you and I could stare at the sun for a couple of minutes and not lose our sight. I don't care how much you, you, you know, bolster up the willpower and be like, I'm going to stare at this bright sun for two minutes. You're going to lose your eyesight. And the same is true for the glory of God for sinful eyes. We see terror before the glory of God all throughout the Bible. We see this with the prophet Isaiah, who after seeing a glimpse of God's glory cries out, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. With Job, after God shows up in the whirlwind to address Job's inquiries, uh, Job just sees a glimpse of God's glory, which is enough for him to say, I don't need any answers. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel writes this. He says, So he came near where I stood, and and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. In the book of Ezekiel, Uh, More than once, and read the opening description of that in in chapter 1, but we see the same thing happening to him. Falls on his face in fear and terror. And the same thing with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Why, though? Because to taste the presence of God's glory is a very weighty thing for sinners. A very weighty thing. This is why, when the disciples were caught in the storm, as we saw a few weeks back, they saw that figure walking on the water and they were scared because they thought it was a ghost. But then Jesus shows up and he says, Ego ami," which is I am, which is the divine name of Yahweh God. And what happens? The fear increases. The same thing happened in the garden when the mob comes to arrest Jesus. Jesus called out and he says, Who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds again, Ego ami," or I am. And that entire mob it says in that text, draws back and falls to the ground. And then they get up, dust themselves off, and continue on with their completely idiotic plan. And remarkably, the great I Am, the same one, whose glory was shown upon Mount Sinai in the glory cloud so many years before, that glory that was shown in the tabernacle and then in the temple, is now here in the pre-existing one. And I say pre-existing because if you read John chapter 1, Jesus is not just the highest of the created beings as the, as the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons will tell us. No, he is the essence of God, one with God, fully distinct from God the Father in his own individual person, but also of the same essence. And so our God is three in one. And he is the pre-existing one. He says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He is the word of God made flesh. And here he shows up revealing the glory that he has always had for all of eternity, the glory that was veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And in the midst of this display of his glory, the voice of the Father booms out from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And if that sounds familiar at all, it's because it's very familiar, because we're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry, and the Father is speaking out from heaven with his booming voice, saying almost the exact same thing he said at the start of Jesus' ministry, at Jesus' baptism, with the only difference of the listen to him being added. It's the same thing. And the reason that he's adding this part, listen to him, and we don't have time to look at all the verses on this, but most people agree that this is a reference to God's promise back in the time of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. We'll read one verse. Here's what I'm talking about. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's what the Father is most likely alluding to when he says, listen to him. And this shows up some other times. It shows up in the next chapter as well. But the point is, Jesus is God's special servant. He's not just another one of the prophets. He is whom the prophets pointed to. And it, So this Jesus is the one to whom we are to listen. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And remarkably, the disciples were eyewitness to his majesty, to his perfection, to the beauty of his weighty glory. And here's the most remarkable thing of all about this encounter. They lived to tell about it. It didn't kill them. And it didn't kill them because in Jesus Christ, we find the hope of God's glory, which allows us to one, once more dwell in God's glorious presence. Which leads us to our third point. To be changed by the kingdom's preview, we must see the beauty of glory. We must see the weight of glory. And finally, we must see the hope of glory. With the disciples stricken in fear, we read in verse 7 what comforts them and what is it? The touch of their master. And when they open their eyes, they see Jesus standing there with the veil back in place, veiled in flesh again. And he then leads them down the mountain telling them not to speak of what they saw until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And this gets the disciples thinking. They don't ask about that, but they ask about something else related to to that and what they just saw. And what did they just see? They saw Elijah. And if you know what the book of Malachi says about the coming of the Son of Man and what Elijah will do, you'll know that this is a sort of a conundrum for the disciples at this point. Let me read this from Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, look at the word before, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So the question they're wondering is, they're like, okay, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But we just saw Elijah. And why did you come first? You see the dilemma? Like, Elijah's supposed to come first. What's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. And they ask this question because a few chapters back in Matthew, Jesus actually addressed that by quoting what we just quoted there. And, he addressed, and if you want to look at that more fully, you've got to look back at Matthew chapter 11. We don't have time to go in the full explanation today of what this is alluding to with the, with the first typical fulfillment mirroring the second coming of Christ. So go back and listen to that if you want. But here's the short version of what Jesus is telling them. He's saying, yes, the scribes are on one hand, they're right. They've got it right. Elijah does come, which precedes the restoration of all things. But they got the timing totally wrong. For Elijah, he says then, in that text here, in in Matthew, he says, for Elijah has already come, and what did they do? They didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they like, which is basically a way of saying they paid no attention to him, they ignored him, they followed their own passions, and inevitably, in the end then, he was killed. He was beheaded by Herod. All right? And so Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but instead they killed him, just as they are going to do to me, is basically Jesus' response. But here's the thing, though. These go hand in hand. Why? Because the restoration of all things requires the death and resurrection of Messiah. You don't get the restoration of all things without Jesus going to the cross. And that's the only thing that can actually bring us hope of ever living once again in the glory of God. Now in Matthew's account, we are told, or we aren't told, what Jesus was discussing with Moses and Elijah. But in Luke's we are. Alright? And what he tells them, what it tells us there, that they discussed, was they discussed Jesus' departure. Right? Jesus is getting towards the end of his ministry. They're talking about his departure from this world, the cross, what that's going to look like, his ascension, all of that. And yet, do you want to guess what word is used for departure there? It's Exodus. It's the same exact concept and idea. They were discussing Jesus' Exodus. And my oh my is there's so much symbolism and foreshadowing we don't have time to dig into here. What did Moses represent? The law. What did Elijah represent? The prophets. Or the greatest of the prophets. And when the Father speaks from heaven, whom does he say they are to listen to? Does he say, listen to the law, the prophets, and Jesus? No, he doesn't. When the the transfiguration ends and the veiled flesh returns, Jesus is the only one standing there. And what a picture of what that is or who that is we are to listen to. And it makes sense because remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 about the law and the prophets. He has not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. And that's why the Father says to listen to Jesus. Because they all point to him. Another thing here before we move on. After the transfiguration is finished, we just said a second ago, we just see Jesus standing there. And that is a wonderful picture of what scripture is telling us over and over again. And what is that? Everything from Genesis to Revelation is pointing us to Jesus. The Old Testament whispers his name. The New Testament shouts it from the rooftops. That's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. Moses was a prefigure, a foreshadowing of Jesus, and as was Elijah. Jesus, then, is the new and better Moses. Jesus, then, is the new and better Elijah. For in Christ, all of the promises of God are fulfilled and are coming true for us. Now, think about this with just a moment for me. We don't have time to look at all these figures, but let's just look at Moses for a second. Think about Moses and how this applies. How is Jesus the new and better Moses? All right, well, Moses led God's people out of physical bondage into the promised land. However, Jesus the new and better Moses leads us out of spiritual bondage, the most serious of bondage, into the promised land of God's eternal glorious kingdom. Moses went up to the mountain, it says, after six days in that Old Testament passage, bringing with him his three disciples, who are... Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu to worship God and make a sacrifice. However, after six days, Jesus brought his three disciples, it's also after six days, Peter, James, and John, up to the mount to worship and then not to sacrifice, but then shortly thereafter become the ultimate and final sacrifice for humanity's sins. And why? In order to accomplish his exodus. In order to lead sinners out of bondage under Satan's tyranny into the presence of a holy and glorious God. And he did so by willing to go from the Mount of Transfiguration to the Mount of Crucifixion. And because he did, we can not only live in God's glorious presence, but this is a really remarkable thing we can share in that glory. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the scripture tells us that his face radiated with the glory of God. In fact, it was so brilliant, it was so remarkable, that it terrified the Israelites. And so what did Moses do? He put the veil over his face, because it was a freaky thing for him. And what a perfect picture this is for the glory that is coming to all of those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see a preview of the eternal king's kingly glory, but we also see a preview of what lies in store for those who are in Christ. Not a glory that we radiate, but a glory that we reflect, just as it did for Moses and Elijah here. See, in the book of Daniel, we read about this glory that is coming, and it begins by describing the glory of Christ in chapter 7, verse 9. I'll read this for us. Verse 7 of Daniel, chapter 9, it reads, The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. But it doesn't end there. For in chapter 12, it goes on to read about this same glory that's coming to us very soon. And it says, But at that time, you people, your people, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found and written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And look at this, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Church, this is what lies in store for the children of God. Not for all of humanity, but for those who are in Christ, for those disciples who have trusted in Jesus to the point of anything where they say, I will follow you no matter what. I will take up my cross and gladly follow you, and I will do so by your grace through faith in Christ. This is what lies in store for them. For all those who have repented of their sins and turned to the only Savior, which is Jesus Christ, who, as Daniel told us in the last chapter, who is the Ancient of Days. He's the Glorious One. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Living One, who died and lives forevermore. And the One whom we will worship and praise for all of eternity. And we'll never get tired of doing it. So the question is then, Is he your Christ? Is he your Savior? If so, take hope in what Daniel tells us is coming for us. But if not, know that if you refuse to make Christ your hope, he will become your dread. Because when he returns, it will not be as a suffering servant, it will not be as your Savior, but as your eternal judge. However, for those who have made him their joy, then we can take hope in the face of whatever this life brings. Sickness, uh, persecution, doesn't matter. Read Romans 8. Whatever comes at us will not separate us from the love of God. And so behind death's shadow lies joy, unspeakable joy. For what waits for us is the glory of the risen king, which is beautiful, weighty, and brings more hope than we could ever dare imagine. So do you have that hope? Do you know that hope? Are you living for that hope? If so, rejoice. For as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The preview has been given. The kingdom's full release date is set and it's coming very, very soon. Are you ready for the glory that it brings? I trust and pray that you are. Father, we just thank you again for your love for us. Your care and concern for us that did not leave us in our exiled state, but through the ministry and the work and the cross of Christ brought your enemies near close to you and made us your sons and daughter. So Father, we just ask that if there's one here today who has not come to trust in Christ, Father, we just pray for them that today would be the day of salvation. They don't have to do anything remarkable. All they have to do is just repent and turn by faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. It's that simple. It's so simple a child can do it. And so, Father, I also pray for your people, Lord, that we would not live for the things of this world, but that we would take up our cross and follow you, not because we're checking boxes, not because we're trying to do religiosity, but because we know that the glory is coming, and that is our true longing and our true desire. So, Father, I just pray for our church. We ask that you continue to bring those to us who would help us and make us strong. We ask that you would keep those from us who would do us harm. We ask that you would edify your saints here for the work of the ministry as we live and long for your coming. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just you stand with us as we sing our closing songs? We're going to sing two of them. We're going to sing Ancient of Days, and then we're going to sing All Glory Be to Christ.